Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. So we've been making comments for 5 years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan... Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Here's what we need to remember about the supermarket. The abundance that can be found in your average Canadian grocery store is unprecedented in the history of humanity. It's close to miraculous, and it should provoke in us a kind of awe. Here is this thing we take completely for granted if we don't think of it as a chore where we can walk into it down the street and it has more options at our fingertips than the greatest kings, emperors, pharaohs had over the course of their lives. 45,000 different items available in continuous year-round availability. Quantity of abundance is just kind of mesmerizing. I'm Benjamin Lore, author of The Secret Life of Groceries, and I spent about the past five years looking deep into the grocery world. And Benjamin remembers the moment. It really hit him. Just how strange and wonderful the supermarket really is. I had spent some time doing field research in Kenya with no electricity and running water. And I came back and went into like an American grocery store in New York and just felt like I was concussed by like America. It was just so overwhelming. And I realized this was something I thought was just like a birthright. 
And it's totally a trope. You know, it's like the veteran coming back and stumbling around the grocery store. But it was it's so real. And I don't know about you, but every once in a while when I walk into a Sobeys or a Superstore, I get a hint, just a hint of that feeling too. But let's face it, I'm so inured to it all by this point. I grew up following my mom around grocery stores as she shopped. But there was a time when the supermarket, the concept of a supermarket, was brand new. And when the first one opens overseas in Rome, you see the same kind of craziness. There's like press reports of Roman women running up and down the aisles screaming, this must be heaven, standing goggle-eyed. People have just never seen food in this quantity in one place at these prices. You know, of course, markets have existed before. It's not like people had never seen this amount of food, but they'd never seen it for these prices. And today in Canada, we're still freaking out about supermarkets. But things are a little bit different. Not only apparently is Galen Weston profiteering off of all of our misery, but also that he thinks we're idiots. Three for $9.99 or $3 each if you buy less. So the more you buy, the more you pay. So Galen Weston's no-name price freeze is officially done as of February, which means that prices will be going up once again and things... Food, groceries are becoming even more unaffordable. I just paid $2.99 for one cucumber and $2.49 for a single onion. All I got was vegetables, and this cost me $350 for one week. Can we just talk about Sobeys for a second? Because I don't know where they got the audacity to be so expensive. Like, oh my god, three sweet potatoes was $6. So one hothouse tomato, $1.60. One tomato. Now we began this series with a game of Westonopoly and a trip to Loblaws. And since then, the conversation around grocery prices has gotten even more heated. But do we really have a right to be so angry? Have we just been coddled by our grocery chains who have been too good to us for too long? Maybe we, the people, are the problem. The answers to those and... Other misleading questions after the break. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You might remember that back in September, Michael Medline, the CEO of Empire, which owns Sobeys, Safeway, Freshco, and many other chains, gave some pretty fiery remarks to his shareholders. He refused, he said, to apologize for his company's success. He was done with the armchair quarterbacks who made little effort to understand even the basics of their business. And he said that these reckless and incendiary attacks 
are meant to divide us. Now, Loblaws took a different and perhaps even more ill-advised approach to try to get their message out. They tweeted, On January 31st, the Loblaw corporate Twitter account began replying to everyday Canadians, pushing back on the idea that they were profiting off of food inflation. Quote, We may be the face of food inflation, but we are not the cause. The staggering increase of costs throughout the food supply chain end up on our shelves, leading to higher food prices. Vas Bednar, who has been our guide through much of this season, was watching it all go down. I was very intrigued. I mean, I'm sure it is frustrating for their firm that in some ways, big and small, they have become the face of inflation. So I found it probably as entertaining and surreal as anyone. And maybe they need to improve how they're communicating more directly with Canadians. I think there's a tinge of anger that we're seeing coming back at Canadians from grocery CEOs. You know, people are getting it wrong. You know, they don't understand. So let us, perhaps, just try to see things from the side of the poor grocery CEOs. Because underneath their snide remarks and defensive postures, there is indeed hiding a single kernel of truth. And to uncover that kernel, we're going to have to go back to the beginnings of the supermarket as we know it. Here's Benjamin Lohr again. In the turn of the century, turn of the 19th century to the 20th century, you weren't allowed to touch the food in a store. It was available strictly in bulk, and it was sold at a place called the General Store, which is about the size of a convenience store of today. Very small. Clerks stood behind the counter. You'd hand over your list, and he would fill it with both food, but also things like boots and nails, dried goods, fertilizer. But things began to rapidly change. Innovations like the cardboard box and standardized packaging led to the creation of food brands. And food brands created an entirely new consumer dynamic. Because you go into the store and you hand the clerk your list, he's no longer just filling it out. You kind of want him to fill it with what you want all of a sudden. And there's choices to be made. And so suddenly shopping becomes not an act of, of just giving someone a piece of paper, but an act of selection. And people become good at it. You can be a good shopper or a bad shopper, and you can demonstrate quality. So you could save for your family by choosing one brand over another. You can buy your husband a big fat steak and, and make shopping an act of love. Or you can buy, you know, uh, porridge for the family and, and make it an act of savings. And there's all these different ways to define yourself. And all of a sudden, this birth of choice on a, a mass level. Technology changed the grocery store, and the grocery store changed us. Soon came stores that customers could walk through and select their own goods by hand. But these were still modest in size, merely a forerunner for the marvels that were to come. And in 1930, a gentleman named Michael Cullen comes along and he kind of puts some of these ideas together to make this like kind of big leap into the supermarket of today. Which is to say he has this idea that if he can take everything and make it cheaper and pass those savings on to consumers, he'll get them to buy more. And his main method for making things cheaper is by making things bigger. So first he like blows out the footprint of the store. You're suddenly saving costs on warehousing because you don't need a giant warehouse if your store itself can act as a partial warehouse. You start saving on labor because he adopts self-selection. 
And because it's a bigger footprint, you can't locate it in a high-traffic main street. You locate it off-strip. And he bundled up all these savings, as I said, and he passes them on to the consumer in a kind of explicit idea that by offering cheap prices, people are going to go crazy and want to buy more. This was the innovation that changed everything, using the size to lower the prices. And he shifts his model from the previous model, which is making profit off gross margin, to making profit off of the volume of goods that he's serving. So I'm going to sell everything cheap, going to get people to think it's so cheap they lose their minds, fill their carts up with more than they ever thought they were going to purchase, and I'm going to make my profit off the fact that they're simply buying more. People were literally losing their minds. Like, the first people who showed up in Michael Collins' grocery store in Queens reported feeling faint and dizzy from, like, standing in the expanse. People are driving hundreds of miles around to, to just to see it as an attraction. And, you know, over the next 20 years, it obliterates everything else. There's no more general store. There's no more grocery stores with clerks behind the counter. There's just the supermarket, and it comes to dominate But here's what's important about the supermarket. This new model of grocery store, combined with other essential changes in how we produce food, basically helped create a middle class. Because the amount of money the average person spent on food absolutely plummeted. It's a real engine of personal savings. I mean, the the percent dropped to 30% by the 1930s, I think. And now it's down to 10%. Less than 10% of our income is spent on food, which North America leads the world. We're the, we spend the least of our income of anybody in the world, which is a surprise to people who feel like they're spending so much of their money on groceries and are complaining about higher prices. Of course, all of this does come at a real cost, not for consumers, but for so many of the people and the animals down a very long, very dark supply chain. Surprise, surprise, there's like the boot of Western capitalism on top of somebody's neck somewhere off in the world, or there's some horror of animal, you know, like cruelty. There is just, there is cruelty to find, but it's just very dishonest to talk about that without the thing that's perpetuating that horror, which is like intense consumer demand for these things. Grocery stores aren't serving us up 45,000 different items at each store because they feel like it. No way. They'd love to do something simpler, but they feel like if they don't offer this and someone down the street does, they're going to lose out. And consumer need is, is driving a ton of both the best effects and the worst effects in the grocery store. Whether you like it or not, this is the bargain that as a society we have made. We all get a plethora of options and incredibly low prices. But all of this was also premised on cutthroat competition between these supermarket chains. And that fundamental dynamic at the heart of this industry has been changing, certainly in the United States, but at an even faster rate in Canada. So this grocery model that Michael Cullen develops where bigger equals cheaper, and cheaper equals an ability to do more volume goods, has its limits in the physical footprint. And, uh, you know, you can only make something so big, and then there are diminishing returns when you have a a superstore, 120,000 square feet. But the, the next way to get bigger is, of course, to start gobbling up the competition and through mergers. 
in the U.S., there were waves of mergers in the 70s, another wave of mergers in the 90s, and then in the early 2000s. I think Canada actually parallels that pretty closely. But starting from the early 2000s, you see a, a big d- drop in independent stores. They, they just have a tremendous pressure to size up to get the competitive advantage that you used to be able to get by getting bigger in terms of store footprint. Because there are huge advantages in terms of uh, negotiating with suppliers, kind of efficiencies that come from consolidating internal staff, buy side, warehousing, um, and logistical workers. And you could use those savings to pass on and create lower prices. And if if you're not doing that and your competitor is, you're going to lose. That's the volume model. That dynamic needing to size up to fuel growth you know, there are some real negative things when it gets to the top, but the the most negative is that the the model of using cheap prices to fuel volume breaks down when there's no more competition. It it requires other people to keep you honest. You have to be looking over your shoulder when there's only one to two dominant firms in towns and especially in small towns and small regional areas where there's only one they're not incentivized to keep prices down anymore. And it's not that there aren't very real inflationary pressures on the big grocery chains. But you add that to a consolidated market and it creates an opportunity for abuse. It creates an opportunity for chains to say, OK, nobody knows what prices are. So we can just use that as like a fog of war and juice our, our bottom line slightly because nobody really knows. And they're expecting us to pay slightly more. So if they in an already fragile environment where the war is done by pennies, we can take advantage of this confusion and raise it slightly. And I think you see that play out in Canada where net profits are up as well during the pandemic. I mean, Kroger in America, our number three grocer, takes those cost cuts and gives two $1 billion buybacks at the height of pandemic when profits are at their maximum to their shareholders. They could have taken those buybacks and used them to prop up wages. It would have been very easy. They could have used those to lower prices during an inflationary period, but they didn't. They chose to take them and and reward their shareholders. And I think that gives a pretty good insight into where that money will go if they don't feel the pressure from competition. And it's easy to put a face and a name to this broken bargain in Canada. At this point, He's certainly one of the most disliked corporate leaders in the country. And this smarmy, sweater-wearing, fourth-generation Nepo baby also happens to be the face of his company. And of course, I'm talking about Willard Galen Garfield Weston. I know food prices are top of mind these days. They just keep going up. To help hit the brakes on food inflation, we're freezing the price of all no-name products until January 31st. Here's what I simply don't understand about Galen Weston. How could he possibly think it's smart to make himself the spokesperson for the company? Because one wonders if what we're really reacting to is also someone as privileged and wealthy as Galen Weston being presented to Canadians as an everyman in kind of his no-frills crew neck sweater amid the bread price fixing (laughs) debacle, amid ending hero pay for grocery workers around the same time. I do sort of get what they were going for. I think Galen Weston is trying to present himself as an updated, modern version of Dave Nickel, 
who was the president of Loblaws throughout the 1970s and 80s and acted as a kind of straight-talking pitchman for the chain. What we did for the chocolate chip cookie and apple pie, we've now done for low-fat yogurt. Our new President's Choice Green Gourmet yogurts contain less than 1% butterfat and less than 80 calories per 100 grams. But while Galen Weston might want to give off the impression of being this generation's Dave Nichol, in reality, he's been modeling himself off an entirely different kind of businessman, Jeff Bezos. After all, Bezos himself became a grocer when Amazon bought the Whole Foods chain in 2017. So Amazon is a company that we see as distinctly tech first, and then it got into the grocery sector, whereas I see Loblaw as a company that is grocery first and then sort of got into the tech sector. They've evolved in really smart and savvy ways, but I think policy thinkers and scholars underappreciate how they may be using data to make really, again, savvy business decisions, great decisions about their very powerful loyalty program acquisition decisions, supply chain decisions, we tend to occasionally import those big tech policy discussions here in Canada without looking at what's happening in our backyard. Data is the currency for all tech companies these days. And Loblaws has one of the largest repositories of consumer data in Canada. There's their loyalty program, PC Optimum which ensures they know every single purchase a consumer makes at any of their many, many chains. Then there's PC Financial, which provides bank accounts and credit cards to customers. And of course, there's PC Health. When you're doing your everyday banking or your credit card, you're sharing credit card information, you're sharing transaction-level data on everything that you're purchasing. You're also sending signals not just about what you consume, but when you integrate that with their PC Health app, which I think also has a health insurance component, and what you're shopping with, you can run some imagination scenarios around, does my health insurance go down because I'm no longer buying, for me, a major expenditure, salt and vinegar chips, Miss Vicky's, which have incidentally have gone up quite significantly. So it's more of a sometimes food as it should have always been. It just builds a powerful consumer profile um, that other competitors simply do not have. For years, Amazon has tried to break into the healthcare industry. But Loblaws? They've already done it. They own pharmacies. They employ pharmacists. They have private label drugs that are over the counter. They're also expanding into virtual doctor's office care. When they have a profile about you and they know what you're consuming and they know your health, And it's just something to keep an eye on that's happening, I think, a bit more quietly than Amazon's attempts were. But in this moment where Canada seems to be moving to privatize more of the public health care system, one wonders what that could mean in Ontario for a company. And maybe we'll stop seeing blah, blah as a grocer first. Maybe it's going to become a grocer last. In 2021, they bought Lifemark Health Group which operates more than 300 clinics across the country, offering services like physical therapy, psychotherapy, massages, and much more. They own a major stake in Maple, an online healthcare provider, which skirts around the Canada Health Act by always putting you in touch with a doctor outside your province, allowing it to legally charge you a fee. And in some ways, all of these tools 
will allow Loblaw to engage in the kind of wholesale data collection that so worried privacy advocates about the Sidewalk Labs project, which we covered earlier this season. Like Amazon, the company is increasingly replacing workers with machines, even rolling out a fleet of driverless cars that have been making deliveries in Toronto since last year. Loblaws has even launched an Amazon Prime clone called PC Insiders that costs $99 a year and provides free click and collect for groceries. And it's using this program to provide discounts on its private label brands, something that honestly should be raising serious competition concerns. In short, Loblaws is a homegrown tech giant. Well, just like Amazon, Loblaw has an online marketplace that is open to third-party sellers and it competes directly against those sellers. So we can have those same conversations with, you know, our own hometown heroes and look at those companies in our backyard instead of othering big technology companies and pretending it's only large American firms that engage in all sorts of conduct and create what I think are legitimate competition problems. Now, I want to take a minute and take a step back here. Whether we're talking about grocery conglomerates or big tech orgs or companies that are combinations of the two, the solution that's often posited is more competition. And throughout this season, we've covered a lot of industries that are clearly in desperate need of some competition. But the history of supermarkets should give us just a little bit of pause because unrestrained competition can also lead to a lot of human misery. Here's Benjamin Lore again. I don't want to paint this picture of like the good old days when competition is driving these price decreases and everything's rosy. But I like want to make it clear, in the quote-unquote good old days before consolidation, chains are caught in a race to the bottom where they are forced to decrease prices and they're forced to make demands on their manufacturers. And those manufacturers to their suppliers, to their suppliers, it ripples down the chain. And ultimately, because it's food and there's certain things we guarantee, like safety for food and quality for food, consumers won't budge on it. Those cost cuts only come out of two places at the end of the day, and that's labor and the environment. The effect of that race to the bottom is overfished seas or, you know, taking uh, agricultural lands and transforming them in kind of brutal ways that that are involve short-term thinking or just cutting costs for labor to the bone to the point where you outsource to countries where there isn't labor scrutiny and you end up paying people pennies. Competition is clearly one of the restraints that we need to set on corporate power, but it is just one of them. This is the final episode in our series on monopolies. And throughout this season, I've been asking a lot of the same questions. Is there something unique about Canada that lends itself to corporate concentration? Is that a bad thing? And if so, what can be done about it? And I can't say that I have any definitive answers that will satisfy anyone, but I do have some conclusions that I've come to for myself. Is Canada unique when it comes to all of this? Undoubtedly, yes. And so much of it stems from our anxieties about living next to the United States. There's a real fear that unless we allow our companies to become as big and dominant as they can, they'll be swallowed up by American behemoths. 
and that's a line of thinking that you can trace all the way back from the Hudson's Bay Company to the modern-day telephone oligopoly. So is that bad? Well, yes. There are real harms that come from the systems that we've set up. Canadian consumers are absolutely getting screwed over here in so many ways. But so are the companies that have to supply these monopolies and oligopolies, and the many small businesses who try to compete against them. But where the real damage is done is in our politics. These companies become so large, so powerful, and so omnipresent that they end up dictating our laws instead of being subject to them. And we, as a country, implicitly know that to be true. I think if Canadians believed that a political party, any political party, would actually bring down cell phone rates in a meaningful way, that party would win a resounding majority just on that plank alone. The problem is, we know that despite their rhetoric, none of them will do it. And so what can be done about all of this? Well, first, it's clear that our laws are outmoded and need to change. Canada's Competition Act needs to actually encourage some level of competition. Our legislation and our regulations on everything from mergers to privacy to predatory pricing are embarrassingly outdated. And we need aggressive enforcement when the laws we do have are broken. And of course, even all of that won't make a fair economy for all of us. Monopoly is just one lens through which we need to examine how to make Canada a better and more fair country. But all of this reporting has actually made me more optimistic. It's hard not to hear from people like Gabor Lucas, who has been single-handedly holding the airline industry accountable, and not feel that you can actually make some kind of difference. Or to hear from the small cinema owners who spoke out even though they knew it put a target on their backs. Or to speak to Tim Bray, an Amazon executive who left a million dollars on the table so that he could speak out about what he thought was right. And here, I'll give the last word once more to Vas Bednar. This is an opportunity for people to take power back from corporations that have maybe dominated our our lives, be it when we're shopping for groceries or when we're seeking out local news media. And better is always possible. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This is our final episode in our series on Monopoly. Thank you so much for listening. This episode relied on work done by Benjamin Lore, Vast Bednar, Jacob Lawrence in the Toronto Star, Jack Howen in Queens Park Briefing, Bianca Barty and Jake Edmiston in the Financial Post, and many, many others. 
I highly recommend checking out Benjamin Lore's book, The Secret Life of Groceries. We barely scratched the surface of what he covers in what is honestly one of the best written business books I've come across, so please give it a read. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This season was produced by me, Jordan Cornish, and Noor Azria. Our managing editor is Annette Egiofor. Our production coordinator for the first half of the season was Andre Pruhl. And our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. And you'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on CanadaLand merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to CanadaLand.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.